You know, that's another reason why practical effects kick the shit out of CGI. Because mm. there's never been a court case where a movie that was all CG, where they had to prove how they did something. Radio Drone. It's another Thursday night. It's another Radio Drone. It's another Josh Hadley. Wait, no, it's the only Josh Hadley. I'm the only Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Peter, totally a Serbian Gajic. Da, to je pravo. I don't even want to know what that means. It was probably a Serbian. I said yes. Yes, that is correct in Serbian. Dope. I also could have called you a nigger faggot, so who knows. <laughs> That's true. And as you can hear giggling back there, Cecil Dragon Castle himself. Oh, you beat me to it. <laughs> I was going to say, Dragon Castle, motherfuckers. If you guys want to deal with motherfuckers, you go to adamandeve.com. I couldn't find a smooth segue, so I'm just going with it. Use the promo code DROME, and you will get ten free gifts on top of whatever you order. You'll get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. All right, now we're going to continue the years here. Now we're into the 80s. 1980 was a very weird year for film. 1980 film jumps out at you immediately. Xanadu. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stick with Xanadu. Xanadu is one of the most 80s movies ever made, and it might as well have been made in the first 1980. So I'm going to go with Xanadu. Okay. So saith the Dragon Castle. Funny he, he should mention uh, Xanadu, because just the other night, Charlotte and I were kind of had a bit of a get-together, and we're sort of Skyping with a few people watching movies and stuff, and we ended up doing this kind of like karaoke thing just using YouTube and the HDMI and the song she decided to pick to close out the night was the theme to Xanadu. That's a interesting little coincidence there. But no, for me, uh, what defines 1980 to me, and it's, it's easily, it's the first film to probably my favorite film series of all time. And that is Friday the 13th. To me, 1980 is defined by, you know, the start of what I consider to be the best horror franchise ever. De definitely Friday the 13th for me. And see, I got to go with Flash Gordon. I got to go with... Dun, 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 dun. Flash! Flash! Ah! <laughs> I, 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 I got to go Flash Gordon for 1980. Now, here's the weird thing, and this also applies to Xanadu as well. It's kind of weird how, in 1980, you were still feeling the 70s. Because Xanadu and Flash Gordon are both very 70s aesthetic movies... In 1980, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, they, it has that, they, they have that very flamboyant, over the top, like just everything is very bright and colorful and lots of neon and just that, yeah, it, it, they definitely have that feel. Funky music, the hairstyles, the costumes, the very shiny costumes. Um, I've always said that the 1980s didn't 
technically begin till maybe 83, 84. And the 90s didn't really begin until maybe 93, 94. Like until 90, 91, 92, movies were still very much 80s. Like if you look at the Ninja Turtles uh, live action film, it's it came out in the early 90s, but it feels like an 80s film, much like how Flash Gordon feels more like something you would have seen in the mid 70s, but came out in 1980 because filmmakers were still, I, I wouldn't say stuck in a certain style, but it still felt like the era of the 1970s and the 80s hadn't really quite gone into full swing yet. Well, see, that said, the strange thing about the 70s was each one of the years was basically about something, which you'll get later in the 90s as well. You know, you had either Chasing Jaws or then later Chasing Star Wars, or you had, after Halloween, you had the slasher movie boom, which you're going to have some of here in 1980, but way more in 81 and 82. 1980 was a weird transitional year for multiple reasons. They weren't chasing another trend at this point, really. And that makes it a very eclectic year. There's some bizarre films that came out this year. We talked, we mentioned slashers. There's a couple of key slashers out this year. You got Motel Hell for one, but then as Peter brought up, Friday the 13th came out this year, which as much as Halloween started the slasher genre, Friday the 13th is the one that truly kicked it into what we think of as the slasher genre. Motel Hell is just a great slasher favorite of mine. Uh, I've always been just a fan of it because it is so disturbingly violent and unexpected and just a very creepy, weird, overbear, like, uh, just, it has a very heavy presence to it. It's such a killer movie. A lot of people really need to see it if they haven't seen it already. But going into Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th absolutely was the movie that really kicked the whole slasher genre in. Like, um, Halloween very deservedly has its place in slasher history. Whenever uh, you're looking at slashers, more people are like, oh, this is a Friday the 13th knockoff more so than a Halloween knockoff. Well, I, I think Friday the 13th is definitely the one that um, solidified it as, uh, I guess, as a trope, as a as a standard. It's, it's set pace for how many slasher films would be made. You know, the whole the body count style, the music style, uh, the way it was shot, the sort of... Um, atmosphere of of like who done it and like uh you know wondering who the killer is by the end of it it was it, it, friday the 13th had a giallo aspect to it where a lot of it was the the point of view of the character and you didn't actually know who it was like in halloween you knew it was michael myers the whole time whereas in friday the 13th it could have been anybody and i think that's definitely something that we ended up seeing more of in like american uh slasher films which were kind of ripped off from the 70s you know italian uh, giallo stuff and, and speaking of the italian stuff we had some great we had some great slasher films there too uh, memorable ones for me anyway you know we had joe damato's anthropophagus which is just a fantastic one to get started on if you want to you know get to know george eastman a little bit we also had joe spinell in in maniac you know uh cecil brought up motel hell that's another really really great one so we we had some definitely launching into what would become more of the the standard for what slasher films would be a, a lot more brutal, a lot more visceral, more more gritty and raw, and, and they would really spend a lot more time on the gore effects, especially looking at Friday the 13th and looking at Maniac, like like the stuff you see in in those movies, you know the the way throats look when they're slit, and and the scalpings in in Maniac, and you know the arrows through the eyeballs in Friday the 13th. 
uh, or even the, the kind of gore that you see in Motel Hell, that was the kind of stuff that you'd start seeing more of throughout the 80s. And, and you'd start to, of course, because of that, see, you know, the the war that the MPAA put on slasher films. I'm sure that's something we're going to talk about more as the era of the 80s goes on. But I think that's that's just um, Friday the 13th was a total starter of of that revolution and a total game changer in slashers and horror in general. And I, I just love it. Let's also not forget how the Canadians threw their hat in here, too, with Jamie Lee Curtis and Terror Train. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. That was 1980 as well. One of the overlooked slashers, and this one is, and I'm going to sound pretentious here, Fade to Black is less of a slasher movie, and it's really more of a psychological thriller with slasher movie elements. The same way Christmas Evil, also from this year, less of a slasher movie and more of a psychological thriller that happens to have slasher movie elements to it. Mm. Fade to Black is all about getting into this kid's head and finding why he's doing it all. Why he is dressing up as his favorite movie characters to get revenge on the people who destroy his, or he sees as destroying his life. I mean, yes, there are slasher movie elements. He dresses up as a vampire and cuts a woman's throat. He dresses up as, as a robot gunslinger and guns down Mickey Rourke. This stuff happens, but I think stuff like Christmas Evil and Fade to Black are much more psychological, and they just get lumped into, like you pointed out earlier, the whole Friday the 13th tropes thing, and I don't think that's fair. You had other horror movies coming out this year, too. I know Cecil's going to take me to task over this, but I have never liked The Shining. Stanley Kubrick's a fine director. Fine. I find The Shining to be one of the worst movies I've ever sat through. I have tried Ooh. to sit, I have, I have tried dozens of times to like this movie because I keep being told, I'm being told, you should like this movie. I, I want to like it. I really do. I find it boring and pretentious and plotting and pointless. I do not like The Shining. The Shining is just one of those quintessential, just amazing movies. The 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 shots they lined up, the uh, the 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 acting, just the whole ominous presence of the film. I mean, that's fine. You you don't like it. I mean, at least you. The, the difference is you at least recognize that it is a good movie, just for whatever reason you don't like it. Whereas I always get irritated when uh, somebody comes along and they'll be like, oh well, you know, th- this movie sucks. And I don't, you know, it's like, well, there's a difference between this movie sucks and this, you don't like this movie. There are movies that suck, but uh, I would not put uh, The Shining in that category. Yeah, I mean, you, you have, um, you have every right to your opinion, even if it's just so screechingly dead wrong. Have your, have your opinion. It's okay if you're wrong. Um, The Shining is great. It, it's one of those, um, movies that fully deserve the the credit that it gets and the i guess overratedness that it gets like i'm there there are tons of people that say it's like one of the best movies ever you know stanley kubrick is a genius for making it and the directing style and blah 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 and i absolutely agree it's one of those movies that deserve to be overrated because it's it's creepy it builds up the characters perfectly it's it's one of those ultimate slow burn horror movies with with the just a fantastic creepy payoff the the soundtrack just the the way that it looks and the way that it feels and and just jack nicholson further falling more and more into complete madness you know stalking the kid through the through that maze with the axe and all the snow and it's just it's just it's a horror movie and it's even got some like little slasher elements in there like watching that you could totally see jack nicholson is like a slasher in a in a body count film 
But say, I, I do think it's it's one of those classics of of 1980, and I actually forgot that it came out uh, that year. So it's it's good to be reminded of that because that's that's one of those movies that I very frequently revisit and and can rewatch the shit out of just because because of the performances, mostly because of Jack Nicholson of watching him uh, sink deeper and deeper into the insanity that the Jack Torrance character goes into. It's just it's a phenomenal film. 1980 also brought us, and I put Maniac in the same category, one of the most sadistic horror films of the year, and that would be Humanoids from the Deep. The Roger Corman Humanoids from the Deep, on the surface, no pun intended, on the surface, it's a throwback to the monster invasion films of the 50s. But this mm-hmm. one is mean. The way <laughs> the way people are dispatched, monsters raping the women and impregnating them in graphic detail. Humanoids from the Deep is a great movie, but it's a mean movie. I think you could only have done that in 1980. Even by the later 80s, yeah. you couldn't have made a movie as sadistic as Humanoids from the Deep. I love Humanoids from the Deep. That's uh, I consider that to be maybe my third favorite Roger Corman film. I think the, the list for me... It's like Death Race 2000, Mutant, and Humanoids from the Deep. Those are my favorites that he's done, and I I love I love that movie. I think it's got a great moody sort of neon look to it, especially at the end. Uh, the, the way the creatures look is great, and it absolutely is unforgivingly savage and mean, and it, it kind of leaves you feeling dirty by the end of it, which I think any good exploitation film should do. One of the little humanoid monster things coming out of of the the chick at the end that's pregnant. It's just great. It's a savage film. And I think, yeah, 1980 was one of the only times, like the early 80s, where you could really do that. It was sort of the, the tail end of, uh, of 70s exploitation where they really got, a, got away with a lot of stuff because the rating systems were different. And it was a lot of the sort of cheaper drive-in theater kind of movies. You know, you had um, – in that same year, you had um, you know, George Eastman devouring a, a fetus after ripping it out of a pregnant woman's – you know, after ripping it out of a pregnant woman and taking a, a bite out of it. So I think this was one of the only years where you could do that. You know, you had you had fetus eating and you, and you had humanoid sea monster rape. So it, it was just a uh, it was a good year. It was a really good year. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it was a um, it was a remake of was that the remake or was no the remake would come in 1996. This is okay. the movie I, that was remade this in 1996. Is the, right, right, right. Okay, I was thinking. Yeah, there's it a is, remake of Humanoids of the Deep. Yeah, yeah, it was remade for Showtime in '96. Oh, Robert Carradine stars. Robert Carradine stars in the remake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Along with, isn't it Emma Sams? Uh, I think so, if uh, memory serves. It's been a while, but yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's everything that that Peter had said. It's just it's so rough and uh, brutal and uh, disgusting and all the things that an exploitation film should be. They uh, it really uh, <laughs> Cor- Corman was showing his understanding of the genre with this one, mm-hmm. and uh, he really nailed it. It's uh, it's such a good uh, movie and uh, just but but in all the like this is not the kind of movie that you would be able to recommend to like the your average moviegoer you can't be like oh well go watch humanoids of the deep you know when they're normally watching like star wars or something like this is for a very distinct personality this is for the kind of moviegoer that likes really weird messed up shit and can deal with uh all the the gore and and just uh, monster rape and everything else that goes in there that they would have a really hard time getting through uh, these days. My only issue with the movie, and Corman probably didn't realize 
that that she was saying it wrong. The main scientist, who is a marine biologist, says the monsters are descended from colacanths. Um, the word's pronounced coelacanth. I know it's spelled with a C, honey, but it's pronounced <laughs> coelacanth. So when you have your marine biologist saying colacanth, kind of pulls you out of the movie for a little bit, you know? Well, you also got to consider the majority of the audience. I didn't know that. And, uh, I mean, yes, you, uh, in a bigger film, you would want them to do their uh, homework a little bit better and make sure that people are saying things the right way. But in a movie like that with, uh, with giant fish, human monster rape, eh, funny, but I'll let it go. Well, and then you also have one of John Carpenter's, I think, overlooked films come out, come out this year. You have The Fog, which is, is his follow-up to Halloween. And, of course, he's got Jamie Lee Curtis back. And, you know, The Fog has some plot problems, but what it does not have is atmosphere problems. This movie is atmospheric as hell. Needed another pass in the script department, but the original Fog is a fantastic movie and very 1980 as well. You're nuts. There's no... no script issues with the fog it's are just you, a, it's are you kidding me so everyone in this little town listens to the same radio station it's the only radio station that they have which by the way only broadcasts from from sundown to sun up which is just bizarre no one there is no police force in town at all there's no cops in this entire movie uh, you can pick apart the plot one piece by one piece about how wait a minute that doesn't make any sense no, that all makes, it makes perfect sense. It was a small town. Uh, they, they didn't have a lot of money, so they only had, uh, the one radio station. What was the, what was the population in that? Like 300 people or something? They're not gonna have, uh, uh, you know, uh, Clear Channel and everything else, uh, broadcasting to this little tiny place. Yeah, the fog is, uh, the fog is brilliant. Uh, that's another one that I forgot actually came out exactly in 1980. Um, one of my, Favorite John Carpenter movies and definitely an underrated one. It's not one that many people know about. I mean, you ask anybody about John Carpenter, they've likely heard of Halloween, you know, Big Trouble, Escape from New York. But The Fog is just one of those great, I guess you could, you could kind of call it a slasher film. There's a bit of a body count there. It's kind of gory, definitely creepy. I love the ambiguity of it, the fact that you can't actually see the creatures very well. Most of them are, are in silhouette, you know, backlit by by the fog itself. Uh, with the glowing red eyes and everything that just looks so, so cool. One of his best, um, soundtracks too, I would say. I don't know if it was him or Alan Howarth that did that one, but that's, that's a fantastic soundtrack. Like to me, it's, um, I've always had trouble picking that as a favorite between that and Halloween three, but the fog is up there for me as like, uh, as one of my favorite, favorite John Carpenter films. Like it, to me, it's right up there, you know, with Halloween, Escape from New York, uh, uh, Big Trouble and, and the fog. It's right up there. And, and some of the best stuff he's ever made. Um, I've never thought about any of the, the, the supposed script, um, flaws. I, I never really had any problems with that. I never thought about the lack of police or the one radio station. I mean, I, I was just too busy, um, too busy enjoying the hell out of that movie every time I've watched it. And I think it's a, it's a movie that I need to see again because it's, it's been a couple of years and I, I love it. Well, there were two other horror movies that came out that really flew under the radar and are forgotten about today. And then we'll get to the big one that I know everyone's already screaming that we're not mentioning. But first is Alligator. The John Sayles amazing script for Alligator makes what sh what should be just a forgettable giant monster coming out of the sewer and killing a town movie into something truly special. 
And then you've got rather boring but interesting Charlton Heston film, The Awakening, based on the Bram Stoker short story. Both of those coming out this year, both of them kind of being forgotten about. Alligator I've seen, and it's a lot of fun. I definitely agree that there's something a little more special to it in the way it was uh, created than it, it could have been. It could have just ended up being a very bland uh, creature feature. I haven't actually seen The Awakening, though. The Awakening is basically Charlton Heston is an archaeologist in Egypt. He opens the tomb of some, you know, Egyptian princess whose spirit inhabits his daughter, Susanna York, and and then tries to live again, and it's not nearly as interesting as I just made it out to be. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty much the same. Uh, Alligator is uh, a lot of fun. It's a classic that I've seen a couple times over the years, and I've never even heard of The Awakening. Well, then let's move on to the one everybody knows we have to talk about. Cannibal Holocaust came out this year. Holy shit, it did? Yep, Cannibal Holocaust, 1980. Arguably starting the found footage craze, and it wasn't the first cannibal film, but it's the biggest one. Absolutely. And I, I think you're, you're on the, you're definitely on the mark with it being, uh, the first found footage film, because technically it is. Half of that movie is found footage you're following along the people that go off into papua new guinea to learn about basically different cultures and different humanities and and the way the way that other places in the world deal deal with things um in ways that western culture do and and they you know sort of try to they try to make make it out worse than it really by you know torturing the tribes and you know, burning down villages and looking for those reactions and ultimately they end up coming across a cannibal tribe that they shouldn't have fucked with and get killed with their own cameras and you've got you know the foot the you've got the other part of the movie which is uh the crew going off and trying to find whatever's left of of the film crew and finding their camera and finding their remains and then you've got the footage of what they were shooting and the eventual very grisly climax of what happens to them and the great thing that uh ruggiero diodato did with this movie is he did market it as a as a real film he got the actor's to stay anonymous, to to sort of change their names and, and sort of disappear for a while, and that ended up kind of biting him in the ass. The he had to produce evidence that the actors were actually still alive because people thought that it was an actual snuff film, and he got in a shit ton of trouble for the the actual animal killing in the movie. So this was not only one of I guess the first uh, one of one of the very first documented found footage films, but one that did marvelously well almost too well because people thought this was an actual live death film and i think that's what makes it stand out as such a classic because this is a movie remembered and revered for being such a such a slimy hideous gross disgusting film and i feel like a utter jackass for not remembering that it actually came out in 1980 for whatever reason i thought it was like 77 78 but yeah, I I love Cannibal Holocaust to death. It, even in its grimy, disgusting nature, even with the the killing of the animals, you know, it, with, with the torture that the people have uh, gone through in it, like the the filming conditions were just fucking horrible. They were really in the Amazon. They were dealing with what were said to be live cannibals, real tribes. You know, they were in actual danger, and they were obviously doing that because you know they're you don't need filming permits out there. The soundtrack is just marvelous. It's a movie that is beautifully disgusting i think is the only way i can really describe it there's there's one thing i truly like about cannibal holocaust and it's kind of the fuck you attitude it has and by that i mean all of robert kerman's scenes are all about how depraved the media has become and should they broadcast and use 
the footage of the people being killed, all the while the movie itself is reveling in you, the viewer, watching that footage. So they're basically yeah. chastising you for liking the movie that they're in. And I, I find that <laughs> yeah, fuck you I attitude amazing. Too. Yeah, the last, uh, I think the last line in the movie says it all. Like, I wonder who the real cannibals are. Cannibal Holocaust, yeah, you can't, uh, overlook how influential it was. It really, uh, it, it absolutely had to have been the first, or I shouldn't say absolutely. It was the first found footage film. Now, we've gotten uh, a few found footage-ish movies over the years, but then it wasn't until the Blair Witch Project came along that it really overhauled the whole thing and made it uh, take off more. But um, just the, the depravity of it, the disgusting nature of it, um, I am not a big fan of animal violence, so I choose to watch the uh, the non-animal cruelty uh, one. It's, it, I, you know, I've always, I just get a weird lump because it's like, you know, with, with people, they have the decision, you know, if they want to, if they're in a movie and they want to leave the film or whatever, uh, they're being mistreated, they can quit, they can go off, they have their own decisions. The animals, they don't know what the hell they're doing. They're brought on and they're being filmed to be killed and usually in really awful, you know, ways. And that always just kind of bugs me. Um, it's, it's crazy how believable the, the movie is. Uh, I think the only movies to ever really have people thinking that they're real is between this, Faces of Death, and Flowers of Flesh and Blood. One of a few movies that they're able to really uh, get under your skin and, and uh, you know, make you think that, holy shit, this is real. Well, and yeah, they did have to do that for – Ruggiero Diodato did have to provide evidence. Like he had to explain that the – you know, the – the famous scene with the the girl that has the pike, you know, through through her vagina sticking up through her mouth. You know, they had to prove uh, how that was done because of how real it looked. It was done using like a, she had to sit on a bike seat and then have the pole in her mouth. Yeah, he had to produce all of the actors in court. And ultimately, by the end of the hearing, he was banned from Italy for like 20 years or something. You know, that's another reason why practical effects kick the shit out of CGI because mm. there's never been a court case where a movie that was all CG, where they had to prove how they did something. But then, you not just horror, you also had a lot of key science fiction movies come out this year. And yeah, 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 I know we're going to talk about Empire Strikes Back later. All right, because that's, that's the big one. You had some other key science fiction movies come out this year. We brought up Flash Gordon before. Didn't do so well at the box office, but Flash Gordon is such a phenomenally fun film that... Yes, it is. It can... Flash Gordon is one of my all-time favorite films. I mean, my all-time favorite film list has things like Network and Brazil on it. It also has Flash Gordon, because <laughs> Flash Gordon is amazing. Mike Hodges, strangely mm -hmm. enough, he captured the comic strip on film. And Queen's soundtrack is so perfect. That movie, as much as I love it, could not work without Queen's amazing score. Oh, I fully, fully agree. Probably one of the earliest comic book movies I ever saw. I saw Flash Gordon back when I was a kid, fell in love with it then, still love it now. I just watched it again a couple weekends ago, and I kind of feel like watching it again tonight, just because it's so, it's so bombastic and just so over the top, and the soundtrack is so perfect, and it's so colorful and weird and action-packed, and it's it's proof that there that there were still some very faithful comic book movies back then. They, they maybe didn't have the technology to do what they can do now, but it was so ambitiously done. You got a guy who was very perfect for the Flash Gordon role. You had the villains that were straight out of the comics. You had the weapons, the world that was straight out of the comics. 
This is a movie that you could, I, in my opinion, you can compare it to the, I guess, um, uh, the way fans are seeing like the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, uh, stuff like that. To me, in 1980, Flash Gordon was that kind of movie. They really tried to be faithful to the source material, material and really make something that reflected the comic. They didn't want to make something that was going to be, you know, their, their, their version of it, their adaptation. They wanted to make a Flash Gordon film. And for 1980, they absolutely absolutely did it could you remake it and could you make it with maybe better effects here and there sure but it wouldn't have the same magic that the original had it wouldn't have that that amazing soundtrack by queen it wouldn't have the same level of heart and camp and and color without coming across as meant to be ironic like if you look at a movie like guardians of the galaxy you could probably make a flash gordon film to that vein sort of tongue-in-cheek but still having genuine action and, you know, characters that are endearing in a way but also very self-aware. The great thing about Flash Gordon is it never tried to be campy. It never tried to be over-the-top. It just was. It was the type of movie that it was. Whereas if you made it now, it would probably be more of a Guardians of the Galaxy thing. You'd have Flash Gordon be portrayed as as more, more of a goof, like more of a goofy kind of character who, you know, spouts – one-liners and, and kind of f***s up here and there like, uh, you know, Chris Pratt's Star-Lord was. Um, he wouldn't be this, like, genuine hero that he is in the in the 1980 version. Would I like to see a new Flash Gordon movie? I would. But again, that's what I sort of see it being as. Like, they wouldn't be able to take it 100% seriously like the way the 1980 movie did and just let stuff happen and let things be unintentionally funny and let things be bombastic and over the top. It, it's one thing that, that bothers me about uh, current science fiction action films that they, they just don't have that that earnest quality to it i i miss that and i want to see that again but i know we're we're not going to get it unless we really a filmmaker who just doesn't give a f- and just completely goes with the flow yeah that one i mean you you nailed it it is such an overflowing fun movie with with just creativity and goofiness and entertainment and uh, uh timothy dalton playing it so straight he ends up <laughs> mm-hmm. being funny yeah and <laughs> i know i know you didn't like the film but i actually liked seeing the whole big homage to flash gordon in ted i thought that was really funny and uh it, it kind of got a lot of people who maybe never had even heard of flash gordon to check it out and see just how ridiculous and awesome it is but yeah we don't get that kind of film anymore where it's just the the big earnest not intentionally tongue-in-cheek like now if they did do a remake of flash gordon it would be one of two things it would be either completely self-aware and a little too on the nose and just poking fun at itself or they would try to darken it up and make it a little too serious and then it would just come off as not working at all but you also had for sci-fi movies you had stuff coming out like like superman 2 which, yeah, it's a superhero movie, fantasy movie, whatever. I'm going to call it sci-fi. You had Superman 2 coming out. You had Somewhere in Time. Whether we like it or not, it's a sci-fi movie. You had movies like that coming out. And then Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. That was the big one. Everybody knew that was coming out. It's kind of weird when you look at the, the progression from the 70s to now. Everyone avoided Every other studio avoided Empire Strikes Back. You'll notice there were no big tentpole films released the month Empire Strikes Back came out. Everybody Mm. knew this film was going to be the one everyone was going to go to. 
Well, they kind of do that now to a certain degree. Whenever there's a really huge movie, they'll do either just everything gets out of its way or they'll try to do counter-programming. Like with uh, Empire St- or not Empire Strikes, with uh, Force Awakens, everything got out of its way, but then they put Tina Fey, Amy Poehler's sister's uh, you know, shitty comedy in there trying to count. Well, okay. Well, all the guys are going to go see star Wars, but then we can get some women to go see sisters. And it's like, well, star <laughs> Wars has kind of evolved past that where now it's like the guys and the girls are all going to see star Wars. But I think that, um, it's, it's smart to kind of get out of the way of a movie like that because you just, you know, you're going to get tranced. Like there's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, I can, I can see when there's like an unproven thing that comes along, but Star Wars, even by, you know, the second movie, they just knew, okay, no, this is a cultural phenomenon. This is something that we aren't going to mess with. Just let it have that weekend and just get out of the way. Absolutely. They knew it was going to be huge. They, just looking back at how the first one did, they knew this one was going to be even more massive. It already became a cultural phenomenon by the time the first one was released. People just knew. They knew to stay the, the fuck out of its way, and rightfully so, because I, mean, I think arguably Empire Strikes Back is, in my opinion, it's the best one. And, and it, through a lot of fan opinion, it's it's the most solid film. It, it ends on very, very ambiguous note. Uh, everybody is kind of in over by the end of that one you know luke loses his hand han's frozen in carbonite essentially darth vader won it was that very grim midpoint after such a triumphant ending after the the first one it it had people it was so perfect in that way because it had people clamoring for even more and i think it, it launched it into an even bigger cultural phenomenon because people were just chomping at the bit for that next one to to see how it all wraps up in 1980, the exploitation film was still going nice and strong as well. I mean, this is a science fiction film, but come on, let's face it. Hangar 18 with Robert Vaughn, Darren McGavin, and John Saxon, that's, a, that's an exploitation film. You also had The Exterminator. Yep. You also had The Exterminator come out with Robert Ginty from James Clickenhouse. You had Dressed. Oh, yes. You had Dressed to Kill. Come on, Cheech and Chong's next movie, it's a comedy. That's an exploitation film as well. Yeah. This was still a really good year for exploitation as much as it was for any other genre. And I think one of the best ones, way too overlooked, the American-Japanese co-production Virus from 1980. They, they subverted everything I thought. Stars Sonny Chiba as a scientist. Doesn't even <laughs> kick a single guy. To me, I was like, how the f*** do you cast Sonny Chiba as a scientist? <laughs> Yeah, they're kind of all over the place. I, uh, I remember Hangar 18. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, I have not seen the one, what was the Sonny Chiba one? Virus. It's an American. I have not seen Virus. It's an American Japanese co-production with one of those, you know, monstrous casts of Japanese stars and American stars. And it's all about the end of the world and, I was drawn to it because I'd been seeing, you know, Street Fighter and stuff on UHF TV, and it's like, oh, Sonny Chiba, why is he in a lab coat? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes they play, you know, against typecast, and uh, he was trying to uh, do something different. I, I think that he, they missed an opportunity to at least, they should have at least thrown, like, one fight sequence in there, or so, just for the hell of it. But uh, eh, who knows? 
phenomenal exploitation films in 1980. I've already covered uh, Anthropophagus, already covered Maniac. Exterminator is, oh my God, just my all-time favorite vigilante film. I always watch that movie, and I pray to whoever might be listening that they make a Punisher film in that vein, and they finally kind of did with Daredevil Season 2. I got a lot of vibes of, of Exterminator from that, and I, I feel like someone was finally listening. Another great Fulci film, uh, you know, following following Zombie, you have uh, City of the Living Dead. The very first Bruno Mattai movie that I that I ever saw that I rented from one of my local video stores back when I was 14, which was uh, Hell of the Living Dead, a.k.a. Night of the Zombies, also a.k.a. Virus, though I don't think that's the Sonny Chiba one. Um, no, and of course, you know. Totally different virus. And, totally and different one, yeah. <laughs> and that has the, uh, the guy who randomly starts dancing and then gets eaten. Yeah. Is, okay, right. is, is, is that is that the one that's totally not a Dawn of the Dead ripoff by using the exact same SWAT costumes? It uses uh, the exact same SWAT costumes and and it steals the Goblin soundtrack from Dawn of the Dead as well. That it, to me is still one of um my my favorite Bruno Mattai movies. I maybe maybe next to Rats, but Hell of the Living Dead is so much to anybody listening that 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 hasn't seen that that much that many Bruno Mattai films and and want to get started somewhere. That's a that's a fantastic one to start in, especially something that came out like, you know, in between Dawn of the Dead and Zombie and City of the Living Dead. And then you just have this goofy mess of a film that is so over the top and flamboyant and, you know, oversaturated in its color. And there's just the the violence is so over the top in it. And it's just it's a complete ripoff. Not 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 even necessarily a ripoff of Dawn of the Dead, though, because the way I've always looked at Hell of the Living Dead is it's what's happening in between Dawn of the Dead or just happening somewhere else in the world. Like these are, these are similar cops or soldiers from Dawn of the Dead, but they're just off doing something else. This is a different, a different crew. And this is uh, the way this team has uh, been trying to survive or whatever. And maybe the, the, um, I forget what the outbreak is called, the, the toxin that spills out into the sky, like Project Sweet Death or some shit. Like maybe that, what caused the the zombie outbreak in the uh, you know in the Romero films? Maybe this is how Dawn of the Dead happened. Peter, you are seriously overthinking this. I think I might be. I might be. That's that's rich coming from you. But yeah, I, I think I, <laughs> I, I I think I might be overthinking it a bit. But yeah, that's that's another great one. And of course, we already talked about Humanoids from the Deep. That's another awesome exploitation film to come out from then. But uh, just so many awesome exploitation films to come out in 1980. A, a lot of one ones that I would say define me as as an exploitation fan. Uh, 79, 1979, great cult movies that I got into, like The Warriors. But I think 1980, that's the year of, of films that made me a slasher and an exploitation fan. Just so so much awesome shit there. It wasn't just all those types of movies. You had a lot of comedies come out this year. Some key comedies, mm -hmm. such as Any Which Way You Can. Caddyshack came out this year. The Blues Brothers. Oh. Airplane. Caddyshack. Airplane came out this year. Popeye came out this year. The great Kurt Russell, Robert Zemeckis movie Used Cars came out this year. The horrible bomb Up the Academy from Mad Magazine came out this year. You had Stir Crazy coming out. <laughs> You had some pretty key comedies coming out this year, too. And the funny thing, when you go back and look at them, just how politically incorrect these things were. Because, again, 
only in 1980 could you have gotten away with some of the jokes that they got away with in these comedies. Because you were coming off the 70s with that sort of flippant attitude, and you hadn't got into the PC culture of the 80s yet. So 1980 was the perfect time for these types of, eh, fuck it, comedies. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, Caddyshack is one of my all-time favorite, not just comedies, but one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, Airplane started the genre that unfortunately turned into all of the garbage that we have now, the epic movie. No, and the, no, uh, it, no. Um, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes came out two years earlier. Same style. The Zucker brothers even admit Attack of the Killer Tomatoes was their inspiration for the, the sort of, quote, literal humor. So this didn't start that. Really? Just, yeah, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes came out before well, Airplane. Well, no, no, no. I'm not doubting that it came out before it. But, I mean, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and uh, Airplane, they, I mean, they're both that goofy uh, comedy but I mean, it's they they seem very different. Like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is they're taking something so absurd like Killer Tomatoes and trying to play it serious. Whereas Airplane, they took Su Crash nineteen seventy five or whatever. They they took the the script from that one. They took the the basically uh, one movie from like the seventies and they did it almost scene for scene. But they did it absurd and then they had leslie nielsen you know just playing the straight guy but uh everything was just done in a different way i mean influenced yeah but it definitely feels uh more of like the spoof movies that they kind of influenced uh i don't know i mean if they say so yeah but i don't really see them being kind of the same thing i don't see attack of the killer tomatoes starting that whole spoof genre i see them starting kind of ridiculousness but not not the same as Airplane. And I, I love Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. I think that it's great, but I, I see it as being something different. Airplane is definitely an awesome one. That's one that I just rewatched the ever-loving crap out of uh, Caddyshack, of course. Just lots of all the ones you listed are, are great. Popeye was a lot of fun. That was a nice little uh, early Robin Williams performance. It, it, to me, that one kind of has the same feel as Flash Gordon, like it's just very fun and very genuine. It's it's goofy as all shit, but it's it's just such a treat and a joy uh, to watch to watch that one unfold and just how over the top and campy it is. Uh, definitely a. a just a great year for a lot of different kinds of movies. Great year for comedy. Great year for for you know uh, horrors and thrillers and exploitation movies and action movies. Just a lot of a lot of great stuff to to come out in that year. And I I can kind of see uh, going back to to Airplane and Attack of the Killer Tomatoes for for just a moment. I can sort of see how Attack of the Killer Tomatoes might have been their their first sort of inspiration for the spoof movie kind of thing because they're they're taking the general creature feature sort of plot but doing it with something completely absurd like like tomatoes i, I can kind of see that making sense there but but i can sort of I, I sort of get where cecil's coming coming from as well with that because they they literally did like a spoof movie they took something that already existed took the script and tweaked it to their sort of parody version of it obviously airplane is is just ages better than the stuff that would start coming out, uh, like the the epic movie and the not another teen movie and and the thousands of scary movies to follow, but Airplane was just just right time, perfect timing, just hilarious characters, hilarious dialogue, so both both over the top in its comedy and and cleverly written as well, just just parodying all the movies that came out at that time, but not being 
mean-spirited about it. I think that's what makes Airplane better than the epic movies and the scary movies and shit that are coming out because you, you never got this feeling like Airplane was hating on the movies it was spoofing. They were just kind of doing it to be funny and to kind of in, inject that into the film and you kind of got the feeling that maybe they were they were fans of those films whereas if you watch the, the epic movies and, and the Meet the Spartans or, or any of that crap, they're absolutely pissing on these movies and it, it just feels like they're embittered like like why didn't we make it in hollywood like like these filmmakers or these movies did it just it feels very bitter and and mean-spirited and just, just a, a tough sit whereas airplane did it did it right airplane's the same kind of movie that you know it, it, it's it's a fun kind of comedy it's like caddyshack um and then of course you had the naked gun movies to follow the the great police squad films that would come out uh later on into the 80s which we'll we'll get into the next couple of episodes but i, I see airplane on the same level as as stuff like that just really good the good kind of of spoof comedy not the shit kind of spoof comedy that we're we're getting these days well, and then we, we have to talk about, before we get into the bombs of the year, we have to talk about Cruising, which I think is one of the most hateful, <laughs> vile films I've ever seen. And yet, yep. that's the sanitized version. The book of Cruising is even more homophobic and hate-filled towards gay people than the movie is. As bad as the movie is for that type of thing, William Friedkin sanitized it a little bit. Part of my problem with Cruising is... It could have gone like Fade to Black and Christmas Evil for a psychological angle, but instead it went for a pure exploitation vibe at the expense of gay people. Because tell me that my version of Cruising would not be a better movie. Al Pacino is a straight man who's forced to go undercover to catch the whoever's killing all these gay men in Central Park. He finds that while he's undercover in something he doesn't like, that he actually starts to fall into this scene. And then when he tries to transition back to Karen Allen, he can't do it. So the being undercover in the homosexual underground has influenced him, and it's his battle with himself to try and find out which world he belongs in. You tell me that's not a better movie than a whole bunch of guys butt-fucking and getting slashed. That does actually kind of happen in cruising. That that does sort of actually happen. Not in cruising, really. Though, they where he they gloss sort of, over that. They gloss they, over it to get to another scene of a gay guy being raped and stabbed. I don't know if they completely gloss over it. Like there are a lot of moments in the film where you see Al Pacino immersing himself a lot more into into that sort of uh, gay underground and the club scenes and stuff. And you see him like working out in front of the mirror and like watching his own his own muscles and trying to get big to like you know bigger and more muscular to get more into that. And when he, the case is sort of winding down, uh, you can see that he's disassociated himself from her and not even meaning to, but that maybe he is beginning to convert a little bit to that lifestyle just because he had been living it for so long. I, I don't think you give the movie as as much credit as it actually deserves. I don't think it's – it is sleazy and it is very exploitive, but I, I don't think it's quite – that bad and that like there is definitely a homophobic sense to it but if you look at al pacino's character he's one of the few characters in the movie that isn't a raging homophobe like he's one of the only ones that, that or one of the only cops i guess that isn't completely resentful uh toward these people and actually does want to does want to help them out the movie does have one of my favorite weirdly out of context scenes though and it's the scene during the interrogation yeah i was about to say that the black guy with the cowboy hat walks in and bitch slaps Al Pacino and walks out. That scene, <laughs> every time I watch it, I'm on the floor dying with laughter. Like, it's so out of con. I think you only see that character, like, one more time after that. They never explain it. 
and it's perfect. It's just one of those great out of context what the f- moments, and I love it. It's kind of a um, negative portrayal of of gays and whatnot. But the thing is, like that was the movie that they chose to make. Uh, it it wasn't something that they created to go out and incite violence on gays or whatever. It was no, just that was, that the, was book. the the book is all about fags are evil and here's why. That's what the book's message was. And then a few other key films came out in 1980 that should not be overlooked, even if we're going to gloss over them. And that would be like Dress to Kill, Fame, Final Countdown, produced by Lloyd Kaufman, ironically enough, The Formula with Tracy <laughs> Scott and Marlon Brando, Gods Must Be Crazy, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, Heaven's Gate, you know, the movie that we've talked about endlessly before, so that's why I'm glossing over it, that bankrupted an entire studio, The Island, <laughs> Little Darlings, Mountain Men, the movie Siskel and Ebert said was the worst film of 1980 with Charlton Heston, The Amazing Ninth Configuration, Raging Bull, what more could we say mm. about Raging Bull that hasn't already been said, and then finally Xanadu. So I just, you know, people are going to yell if we don't bring those up, but... This year, we have a new wrinkle from here on out for these year retrospectives. The the Raspberry Awards were made this year. The Golden Raspberry Awards came out in 1980. Ah. So who won their first, uh, who won their first Razzie in 1980? Worst picture was Can't Stop the Music, the Village People film. (laughs) Proving that the Razzies were stupid from the beginning, they had nominated the was it uh, worst director and worst movie for The Shining? Oh, God. The, 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 but the, that didn't win. Worst actor No, it went... didn't win, but the fact that it was even considered shows that right out of the gate they didn't know what the hell they were doing. Yeah. Worst actor went to Neil Diamond in The Jazz Singer. Worst actress to Brooke Shields in The Blue Lagoon. <laughs> worst director went to Robert Greenwald for Xanadu. Worst screenplay oh, went, went to Bronte Woodward and Alan Carr for Can't Stop the Music. From this point forward, we'll have the Golden Raspberry Awards to be adding to all of this nonsense that we talk about. But <laughs> for those who want good movies, the Academy Awards went to Best Picture was Ordinary People, Best Director was Robert Redford, Robert Redford for Ordinary People, Best Actor, De Niro and Raging Bull, Best Actress, hmm. Sissy Spacek and Coal Miner's Daughter. Top Box Office was, come on, Empire Strikes Back. I don't think that's a surprise. Yeah. Nine to five, which is kind of a surprise. Stir Crazy, which is a great movie, but I'm kind of surprised it was the third highest grossing film of 1980. Airplane, Any Which Way You Can, Private Benjamin, another kind of surprise. Coal Miner's Daughter, Smokey and the Bandit 2, a film we glossed over. The Blue Lagoon, ugh, and The Blues Brothers. So 1980 was a very eclectic year when it came to film. It's somewhat interesting when you look at it in that respect that it's going, to, it's going to just get weirder from here on out. So Cecil, sum up 1980. Xanadu. <laughs> Fine. Peter, sum up 1980. Friday the 13th. And uh, also my favorite line from The Exterminator, that nigga was my best friend, you motherfucker. I sum up, I sum up 1980 as a transitional period. Because you were still feeling the 70s, and you knew the 80s were on their way. So this is a very transitional decade. And when you look at a lot of these films, like 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 the Ninth Configuration, it's a very 70s-style movie with very 80s-style aesthetics. So that's a perfect transition film. Cecil wasn't even born yet in 1980, but if people want to contact him, they would go to... 
find you can contact me if, and watch me talk about stuff at uh, escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflix.com, and Facebook and Twitter. And Peter isn't even a zygote yet, but where can he be found? I can be found uh, on on the Twitters at Zinematica. You can find me on the Facebooks, the Cinemasticus. You can find me on the YouTubes, the Cinemasticus, and of course also on 1201beyond.com. I may have been born eight years after 1980 in the, the pleasant year of 1988, but I am still clearly living in the 80s because if you watch the Cinemasticus, that's pretty much all I talk about and all I'm influenced by. So, uh, Whenever I make a new video, uh, you, you can check that out, or you can just rewatch some more episodes. I don't know. It's uh, it's all very 80s. If you, if you don't like the 80s, and fuck off, you probably won't like it. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And it's always the 80s with me. So, guys, keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. <laughs>
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.